Welcome to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a Baptist church located in Lexington, Kentucky. We have a heart for God and a deep love for people. You can learn more about our church by visiting www.gracewaylex.org. Now, here's this week's message. I ask you this morning, if you would, to uh, grab your Bibles and turn to Psalms, the book of Psalms, chapter 1. Psalms 1, we're going to be there um, in just a minute. Uh, It kind of is hard to believe that we're already in uh, the month of July, at the end of the month of July, and headed uh, headed into the month of August, which means that we are smack dab right in the middle of what usually some people call the dog days of summer. You guys know what I'm talking about? Anybody heard heard that phrase, the dog days of summer? I remember when I played baseball, usually we'd head into all-star season uh, around that time, and, and for some reason, the, the league that I play for, they always pick the hottest polyester blend uniforms to wear in the dog days of summer, and they were always like the dark colors, you know, like black, and then black wool hats and all that stuff, and so, man, it was like the dog days of summer, now here, put on this sauna suit and go out there and play baseball. I think I like sweated off like 40 pounds every game or something like that, which I, I know you're looking at me right now, and you're probably thinking, you know what, maybe you should get back in one of those uniforms and get out on the field for a little while. Um, but, uh, but anyway, so you guys know what I'm talking about, the dog days of summer. You know, it's those, those long, hot days, and especially in Kentucky, it means it's long and hot, and somehow it seems to be dry and humid and sticky all at the same time. You know what I mean? Like, Kentucky weather um, is weird. It's like none of the, there's no water on the grass. It's all shriveling up, but when you walk out, it's just like the moisture is all in the air, you know? Um, but um, it's just that kind of heat that seems to just drap you, uh, just, just like drain you of your energy and zap you of all of your just motivation, zaps you of, uh, of anything that you, you, you started the day thinking, man, this is going to be a good day, and you walk outside and say, oh my goodness, man, I'm just going to go in, turn on the AC, and just call it a day or something like that. Um, and it's one of those things that even a small breeze on one of those dog days is just like, man, it's just like refreshment. You're like, thank you, Lord. It's like manna from heaven, you know? And for a guy like me who is a fall and probably more like winter lover, I like the winter season, this is like the absolute opposite of what I enjoy in my life. Can I get a witness? You know, everybody else, any, how many of you are winter lovers? You like the cooler weather? Like the cooler weather. If, you, if you're a cooler weather person, you're watching online, just, just comment. Back. Okay, now how many of you need to be saved because you like the hot weather? Okay, something wrong with you people. There's therapy for people like you. Um, but anyway, um, that's just kind of like, it's just the hot weather for some reason with me. It's just, I can't, I can't take it. So what I do is I usually find myself just trying to endure these days, do whatever it takes to get through those hot days. And so the question that I was kind of thinking as we kind of jump into this new series this morning is what is it that helps you endure the dog days of summer. Like on a hot day, what is it that we usually look towards um, to, uh, to get through the hot days? Now, for, for a lot of people, maybe it's like a big old ice cold freezing iced tea, like sweet iced tea. Maybe that's for you. Or maybe you like this big old, you know, glass of iced cold freezing lemonade. Am I making anybody thirsty yet? right? Uh, How many of you are like, I want some sweet tea, I want some lemonade or something like that on a cold day? Now, for you millennials and you Gen Zers, you probably want like a venti frappe from Starbucks or some sort of ice caramel macchiato, no soy, no fat latte or whatever it is. Uh, My daughter, my teenage daughter, I was asking her about this and I was like, so what is it that you like on a hot day to cool down? She goes, oh dad, I just like a venti iced guava white iced tea lemonade mint refresher from Starbucks. I'm like, good gosh, man, you got to have a doctorate to remember the order. You know, uh, but you know, that's just kind of the difference in the, in the generations or something like that. But, um, you know, 
there's something about a cool glass. Maybe it's even just a cool glass of water on a hot day, just sitting on the porch. Maybe a breeze is coming through. It just brings that refreshment to those dog days of summer because sometimes you may wonder if they're ever going to end. And spiritually speaking, we go through dog days as well, don't we? Spiritually speaking, we can go endure these dog days when your spirit just feels like it's dry, when it feels like there's pressure coming in at you from all angles, when, it fe- when you're just looking around and you're like, man, I just need something, when it feels like maybe your prayers aren't getting past the ceiling, you feel like you haven't heard from the Lord in a long time, and you feel like you're just going through the motions or something in your walk with Christ, it can feel like you're in the dog days. And just one little piece of one little something, one little breath from heaven is like this this breeze that rushes through and just rejuvenates your spirit. We need those moments, those nuggets, those things that God gives us along the way. And here's the thing, when we get to those places where we look across the horizon and we see no relief in sight and we're desperate for something to come and revive us and refresh us, where do we turn? Where do you turn when you go through those dog days? Because the thing is, is that as believers, every one of us are going to encounter dog days at one time or another. There's going to be times on the mountain, and then there's going to be times in the valley. So where do we turn when we're in the middle of the dog days? Well, as believers, we know that we're never abandoned, so maybe we turn to the promises that we know that Jesus says, I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you, that he's always there, that even though it may feel like we're abandoned, he is still there. He's never left us. He's never forsaked us. We know that the spirit is living within us as believers, that he indwells us and that he inhabits us and he inhabits our praise. And we also know that we have the living, breathing and active word of God that God speaks to us each day through it. We know that his word is living and active in us. And right in the very middle of the Old Testament, right in the middle of the Bible, chances are if you take your Bible and you let it fall open, the biggest chance is it's going to fall open in the book of Psalms somewhere because the Psalms, the book of Psalms is a big dog book, man. I mean, it's like 150 chapters. One of the longest chapters in the Bible resides in the book of Psalms, Psalm 119, and that Psalm has 176 verses to it. So God has given us this huge book of Psalms, and guess what it is? It's just a book of poems and a book of songs that continually remind us of, number one, the presence of God, of, number two, the word of God, and of, number three, our place in God, and reminds us that he never leaves us and never forsakes us. The Psalms are like these beautiful poems, these beautiful songs that pack a lot of punch, and they just speak to our spirit during the dry seasons of the soul. What I found when I go to the Psalms is many of these Psalms are so transparent And they wrestle a lot with what a lot of us are probably dealing with on a regular basis, these feelings of of just just downtroddenness, especially in the day that we live in today where it seems like there's never any good news. There's a lot of fear around us, you know, where we feel like what's going to happen tomorrow and there's some uncertainty. When we go to the book of Psalms, we find these people, we find the psalmist, most of them David, on the run, being chased, enemies surrounding him, yet in the middle of all of that, David is confident and he finds peace and he finds security. Why? because he rests in his God. And so this morning, uh, what I thought during the spiritual dog days, the Psalms become the shot of relief that we need that rejuvenates our spirit if we'll go to them, if we'll listen to them. So what I thought for these dog days of summer, I thought it'd be nice to just spend some time uh, each, each Sunday looking at some selected Psalms that hopefully will speak to our soul and to our spirit. And this morning, I thought the best way to start out would be to go to the very first one in the, spirit, in the Holy Hymnal um, in, in chapter one. And what many people do nickname the Psalms is the Holy Hymnal. Because a lot of these Psalms that we look at are actually songs or poems or recitations that original believers or, or the, the followers of God in the Old Testament would, would kind of 
quote and would use as their hymnal, as their, as their uh, music book to worship God by in the temple. And so let's look at Psalm chapter 1, beginning in verse number 1, and we're going to read all the way through this entire psalm, and we're going to focus on verses 1 through 3 this morning closely. But in Psalm chapter 1, beginning in verse number 1, I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. It says, How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked, or stand in the pathway with sinners, or sit in the company of mockers, or sit in the seat of the scornful. But instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction or in the law of the Lord, and in it he meditates on it day and night. And he's like a tree that is planted beside flowing streams or rivers of water that bears its fruit in its season, whose leaf does not wither, and whatever he does will prosper. But the wicked are not like this. Instead, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand up in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous." but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you this morning just for the opportunity and the privilege to be in your house this morning and to be gathered together. And I thank you also for the gift of your word. Thank you that we have these precious and sweet promises that never change. Thank you, Lord, that your word is settled in heaven forever and that we can depend upon it like a solid rock that doesn't shift with the changing tides and the seasons and and what we may go through in this world today. Thank you that it is our secure anchor that we can grab onto. And I pray as we kick off this new series, as we look in the book of Psalms, that you'll open our hearts, Father. And some of those hearts, uh, transparently, Lord, some of those hearts are weary. Some of our spirits are, are, are feeling seasons of, of dryness, God. I know personally, just being, just being upfront and honest, Lord, this is a season where I'm desperate to hear from you where it may seem like we're further away. And I pray this morning that as we get into this series, Father, you will speak to us, that you will speak truth, and you will speak vitality to our souls. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked. Your translation in your lap may say, blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, or sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he does meditate day and night. This passage is talking about the subject of godliness. And the question that we have to wrestle with this morning is, what does it truly mean, or what does it really mean to be godly? We've heard that word, we've probably used that word, we've probably ascribed that word to some people. You may know, think about just for a moment, if you have to close your eyes, whatever, think about the godliest person that you know. For some of you, it might be a sweet grandma, or a sweet grandpa, or a great grandma or grandpa. It may be a coworker. It may be an aunt and uncle. It may be your spouse. I know that's probably Stacy's situation right now when she closes her eyes and thinks about the most godly person she knows. You know, but, but we know godly people. But what is it that makes a person godly? What, what is it when we use that word, what does it really mean? And does what we think about godliness actually line up with what the word of God says it is? What does it take for a person to be godly? And the other question that we have to wrestle is, why is it so important to be godly? Why is it so important for us to pursue godliness in our life? There's a great deal of confusion sometimes for for believers, especially in in our modern era, to take grace. And as Paul says, he doesn't want to frustrate the grace of God, meaning taking grace and making it cheap grace, as the the theologian um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, we don't get into what's called cheap grace, meaning I take the grace of God and I'm going to live my life any way I want to and I'm going to go to heaven on God's dime. See, true salvation, true grace 
brings us to a place where we pursue godliness, where we uh, say no to the old way and adopt a new way. But it can't be just reduced to legalism and to a checklist. It has to be something that really gets inside of us and changes us at the heart level. You see, I believe that the very first line in Psalms addresses the question of what does it mean to be godly when it says, blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, or how happy is the one who doesn't walk in the advice of the wicked. So the importance we see of pursuing godliness, why is it so important that we do that, is that we're going to be made blessed or that we're going to be made happy. That word blessed there in your Bible, when you translate it from the Hebrew, it literally means happy. We take that word blessing and think about stuff. And interestingly enough, in a materialistic society or in a materialistic mindset, we find happiness in stuff. But that's not what the word is talking about here in our verse. The importance of pursuing godliness is that God will make us blessed. We will find our happiness, we'll find our joy, our peace, our standing in the Lord. And what's better on a spiritual dog day season that you go through than to open the book and the very first word of the book is happy. When you're in the middle of the dog days, when you're in the middle of a downcast season and you open the word of God and the very first word that hits you is, be happy. And here's how. What's really interesting to me is the way the psalmist bookends this passage. He opens in verse number one with the word happy or blessed. And if you scroll all the way down to verse number six and you see the last part, he says, the result of godliness is happiness. The result of wickedness is what? Is perishing, is sorrow, is trouble. So we can't miss the importance of this psalm being the first one in the holy hymnal. We can't miss the importance of in the spiritual dog days when we get into this and we begin to look at what God's word says for us to speak to our souls. He says, if you want to find happiness, you want to find joy, you want to find relief on those troubled days, find it in me. Find it by just nuzzling up close to me. And it's interesting because it opens us up to the blessing and happiness, but he also warns us about a divine judgment that we all will face as human beings. He says, you have a choice between two paths, one that leads to happiness and peace and security in me, or one that leads to perishing, and one that leads eventually to ultimate sorrow away from me. And I love what Dr. Johnny Hunt says. He says, it's as though this psalm stands here as a faithful doorkeeper of the book, Confronting those who would be numbered among the godly, the Psalms, along with the Proverbs, often use the same theme of wisdom of writing when they place a huge amount of interest in the company that we keep and the two pathways that are often set before us as followers of God. So the ideas that we see expressed in Psalm 1 are actually mimicked and paralleled by what the prophet Jeremiah said over in Jeremiah chapter 17. Listen to, listen to this passage and, and, and look at Psalm 1 there in your Bible and see how much they just line up together. This is what the Lord says. Cursed is the person who trusts in mankind. He makes human flesh his strength, and his heart turns from the Lord. He will be like a juniper in the, uh, in the Araba, or in the desert, and we cannot see when good comes, but dwells in the parched places, in the wilderness, in the salt land where no one lives. But the person who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence indeed is in the Lord, is blessed. He will be like a tree planted by water and it sends out its roots toward a stream. It doesn't fear when heat comes and its foliage remains green. It will not worry in a year of drought or cease producing fruit. It's a wonderful warning there in Jeremiah 17 that we also pick up here in Psalm chapter 1. And, and, and if anybody knows, repetition is a key to learning. So when God repeats something, it means get this. Understand this, take this in, right? And I love what it says in, 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 verse, in verse number five of Jeremiah. It says, curses the person who trusts in mankind. Well, if we don't have God to trust in, what's our other choice? 
other people or ourselves, right? And he says that brings a curse to us. That's something important for us to remember in this modern day that we live in when everybody is just like looking for answers from someone or somewhere, that the answers and peace and joy and happiness only come from God. Otherwise, we are cursed to end up being disappointed or worse than even just disappointed, end up facing condemnation. See, one of the most popular words in the Christian vocabulary is blessing. We say that all, I catch myself so many times saying, when I'm, especially when I'm leading prayer in public, I'm like, Lord, bless us and bless this and bless that. It's like I'm blessing out everybody, right? We use that word a lot. Who doesn't want to be blessed? You have to be, something has to be wrong with you if you say, hey man, as a follower of God, do you want to live a blessed life? Well, no, I'd rather not live a blessed life. I'd, I'd like to just be cursed and I'd like to go through as much suffering as I possibly can. Nobody says that. Why? Because we want blessing, because we know that blessing is something that comes from the hand of God. And this is what Psalm 1 says. If you want to be blessed, if you want to find happiness and peace and security in me, here's the step, here's the pathway that I'm laying out for you. There is a pathway to blessing and the other pathway is one that leads to perishing. This Psalm interestingly is written in anticipation of what Jesus would say in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember what Jesus said? Jesus said that there's two roads, right? Said there's one that's broad is the road that leads to destruction, but narrow is the way that leads to life. It's basically an echo of what Psalm chapter one that we're looking at this morning says. Scripture teaches us that godliness, pursuing godliness, is a big deal. Matter of fact, uh, Paul told Timothy, the young pastor who was struggling there in Ephesus, when he said this, he said, godliness with contentment in the Lord is great gain, or it is the truest wealth that we can find. There's a lot of other choices that we can go after and a lot of things that we can pursue, but godliness with contentment in God is the greatest wealth that we can truly find here on earth. So let's consider this question this morning. It's the title of the message is, what does it truly mean to be godly? Or what is it that we have to consider as we consider our godliness and whether we are securing that within us? Now, first of all, we have to understand, godliness isn't something that I can claim. Godliness isn't something that I can earn or manufacture. Godliness is something that has been given to me the moment I've been saved. So we are planted in godliness, but we can also wander away from that as we wander away from the Lord. So let's consider a couple of things. First of all, when I consider my godliness, I must consider the direction of my life. What direction is my life headed in? When I'm considering, am I a godly person? Would I be numbered among the godly? I have to ask myself, well, what direction am I headed? Where are my feet taking me? The psalmist calls out, uh, calls notice to which direction that we're really headed in. Now from a technical standpoint, when you look at this passage, it's written in the wisdom literature way. It's the way that they would write ancient wisdom literature or ancient poetry. And we're given three sets of triplets in the technical breakdown of this passage. First, we get uh, a breakdown of a three-way um, trajectory of walking and then standing and then sitting, right? So it says, walk in the counseling of the godly, stand in the way of sinners, sit in the seat of the scornful. So we get this, this, I'm walking, then I'm standing still, then I'm sitting. Then we see I'm going from counsel and advice to a way or a behavior, and then I'm going to the seat or the company I am actually taking in the influence. Then we see ungodly or wicked people, then we see sinners, and then we see sinful, scornful mockers. These triplets that we see here in the passage gives us this step-by-step -step journey, and it's a journey in the wrong direction, right? You go from walking to standing to sitting. Now, from a health standpoint, my Apple Watch would not like that. My Apple Watch wants me moving, wants me walking. 
it, it'll say, okay, if you don't want to walk, you at least stand. It always dings and tells me, hey, it's time to stand. You got to stand up. You haven't stood up in a little while. And then it'll say, if I'm just sitting down, it's like, just forget it, whatever. You're done for the day. Take it off and charge it, right? Uh, if you got an Apple Watch, you know how annoying they can be sometimes, right? But it's this progression, but it's a progression in the wrong way. And that's the progression that Satan wants to lead us in. See, when Jesus saves us, he sets us to go forward in him, to go forth and to share the gospel and to live a godly life. But then here's what happens. Temptation causes us as we're walking along, ooh, it lures us away, and then we stand and we gaze for a little while. And then as we like it a lot, we begin to sit down, and all of a sudden we're stuck in it, and we're not moving. And that's what leads us to understand this. Sin will always work to shut us down. Sin always works to shut us down, but Christ is always working to move us forward in him. There are three steps of departure. We begin to accept the advice of the wicked, the accepting the advice of the world, and then we become a party to its ways. We begin to adopt its practices, and then we begin to adopt the attitude, which then affects our heart. But you see, these negatives are then followed up by a positive. So he says, don't do all of these things, but what we must do if we're going to contradict those things is to delight in what? In the law of the Lord, or delight in the Lord's instruction. Standing opposed to all of the negative things, all of the lies, all of the things that begin to lead us into those dry dog days of the soul is the law of the Lord, is the instruction of the Lord. The law of the Lord stands opposed to the advice of the wicked, to the counsel of the ungodly. And the theme of Psalms teaches us an important truth that we cannot ignore. Write this down, emblazon it on your brain, tattoo it on your forehead, whatever you need to do. But whatever shapes our thinking ultimately guides our lives. Whatever shapes our thinking will ultimately guide our lives. I am always moving in the direction of my most common thoughts and belief system. So it's important to understand how our thinking is shaped. Our thinking will be shaped by the counsel that we hear. It says, don't advise, if you look back at verse number one, it says, don't walk in the advice of the wicked or in the counsel of the ungodly. In other words, don't attempt to lead your life guided by the wrong practices or, or by the wrong principles. Don't, don't live your life guided by the wrong principles. This is wrong thinking. Why is it important that we are not guided by wrong thinking? Why? Because wrong thinking or the way that we think will guide our lives, the direction of our lives. Proverbs chapter 23, verse, 20, uh, verse 7 says, For as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. As your heart is geared, that's the way your steps are going to be guided. That's the way our thoughts are going to be going. As we think in our heart, so are we. So we have to ask ourselves this question is, if the counsel I get is important, where am I getting my counsel? If the advice that I get is going to guide my life, where am I getting my advice? Well, there's any number of ways that we, want to get, we can get our advice, right? From the people around us, and especially in the day and age that we live where we have news at our fingertips and any type of media that we want, any type of interaction that we want to have digitally at our fingertips, we have to be careful of even the digital interactions. where We're getting our advice and our counsel from sources that we may not even know. That's why we talk about clickbait and fake news and all those things. That's why it kind of comes back to a responsibility that we have to make sure that the things that we are taking in, the things that we are believing are true and wholesome and in accordance with what the word of God has to say and leads us to a place of seeing things through the filter of God's word and his truth. You see, uh, the Bible tells us that to stay away from the counsel of the wicked or the ungodly. This is talking about people who are willfully and persistently evil that they're bent away from God. 
These are people that not only do not know the truth, they're also manufacturers of lies to deceive people away from the truth. Satan works to deceive us from the truth. And there are some people who willfully and willingly take it in and then disperse it so that it can lead people away from godliness. You see, that's why we have to be careful. We talked a lot about this in the series on Titus and Ephesians when we talked about the culture of life that God gives us within the word of God and then the culture of death that we see um, in the world around us. We're so focused and, 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 and just obsessed with, with death and negativity and fear in our flesh. But I, I, in, my, in my devotional time, my private time with God this week in the past several weeks over my vacation time, this verse just kept coming up in the multiple devotionals that I kind of go to here and there. This verse kept coming up, and I don't think that's by accident that God placed that there because I know I personally needed it. But listen to how this applies in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellent, excellence and if there is anything praiseworthy, then dwell on these things or think on these things. Now line that verse up with what we normally see during just a, a normal view of the six o'clock news, if you still watch the news or wherever you're getting your news from, or line that up with what you open up on Facebook and start scrolling through on your phone or on your on your computer or Instagram or whatever you're on, whatever social media you're taking in. Line this verse up and say, okay, if I lay this over top, does it line up or is it at odds? Because what we see is culture of death versus culture of life. See, what a better way to direct our thoughts than to think about those things that are honest and true and pure and lovely and of good report. These are the things of God. God would not want us to be ignorant. We find that phrase so many times in scripture. God doesn't want us to be ignorant. He wants us to know him, know his will, know his way, and see the world the way he has intended for us to see it. See, our direction is formed by the counsel of others, but it's also formed by the conduct of others as well. The second part of that verse says, do not stand in the pathway of sinners or stand in the way of sinners. It's attempting, this is basically what it means, is attempting to lead my life by the wrong practices. It's about how I behave. Because how I think is the way I'm going to eventually end up behaving, right? How I think is how I'm eventually going to end up behaving. See, we'll normally live according to what we believe. So if we're going to live, if my steps are going to be guided by what I believe, I need to make sure that I'm believing and living by a biblical worldview if I'm going to have a godly impact on the world that's around me. See, here in the negative, we see that we've moved from taking the advice of ungodly people or of the world to now being committed to that way of life. Interestingly enough, the more we expose ourselves to lies, the more we end up begin to believe them. And the more we'll end up beginning to, to walk and act accordingly to those. And this is really easy to do because we're already bent towards sin anyway. Because our old man, our old way is already bent toward that sin nature and we still battle that with inside of ourselves once we're saved. So this is something that is really easy to do. This is why sin still tempts us once we're saved. Once we get saved, it doesn't make us perfect. God is completing us and perfecting us and sanctifying us in him. But those temptations are still there. And so that means that we have to make sure that we are on guard and that we take in the counsel of God's word more than we're taking in the other type of counsel. You see that word sinners, he says, don't stand in the pathway or on the pathway or get on the road with sinners. 
Why? Because this word sinners is, well, aren't I a sinner? Yes, but you're a sinner. If you're a believer, you're a sinner saved by grace. There's a difference between being a sinner and a sinner saved by grace. And then there's also sinners who are not saved by grace that are just outright sinners. And that's what this passage is talking about. It's talking about people who are missing the mark of God's standard and they're thrilled to death about it. It's like what the old prophet said. It's like they had gotten to a place where they'd walked away from God so much they'd forgotten to blush over their sins. You see, each one, of, each one, before they come to Christ, comes to a place where I realize I'm a sinner that I've missed the mark of God, but I care that I've missed the mark of God, and I want to see something change in that. That's the place I've got to get to if I'm going to come to Christ. But there are those who are still lost in their sins and ignorant in their sins, and they're thrilled to death about that. That's what the Bible's talking about here. Don't stand in the pathway. Don't get on the road with those who have nothing in common with you as a believer and don't want anything in common with you as a believer. We have to be careful. Now, do we still have a responsibility to reach them? Yes. And we reach them in the same way that we reach those who are in sin but care about it too. We share the gospel because truth will always stand strongly against the lies. So we have to understand that our direction will be formed by the conduct of others and our direction will be formed by the company that we keep as well. He says, do not sit in the company of mockers or sit in the seat of the scornful. This is now talking about wrong, uh, where we were talking about um, uh, wrong policies, then wrong practices, now we're talking about wrong partnerships. See, hold on for a second. I thought you told me that uh, every good Christian needs to have friends who are unsaved. Yes, we do. We need to be making an impact for the gospel. There's a difference between being a friend with sinners and being a friend that does sinful things with the sinners. And I don't mean you have to judge and always say, I'm just saying, hey man, I'm just not going to be party to that. That's cool. Let's get together. We'll do something else, but I can't be involved in that. See, we're not, we've all heard that phrase, we, we're known by the friends that we keep. We've all heard that phrase, right? But that's only part of the phrase. We're known by the friends that we keep, but we're also shaped by those friends too will be shaped by them as well. Say, so, well, isn't that the same thing for me as a believer? Yes, it is. So if you think you can go into that and say, hey, I'm going to make an impact for Christ, and we always need to be making an impact for Christ. But if a person is continually showing, hey, I want nothing to do with the gospel that you preach, there has to be like this distance made, because if not, that continual message, that continual tension will eventually lead to the dog days of the soul that we're talking about. See, lots of people will try to lead you away from God, but God's the only one who will be there when times get really bad. See, a lot of times people will try to drag us down or, 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 or the world will find themselves dragging themselves down and we will go down with it. We'll go down with it, but here's the thing. Nations, tribes, tongues, individuals throughout history have tried to stand against God and in mockery of God. And that's what the word of God, that's what the word means. Mockery and scornful is one who makes light of God's laws and ridicules his sacredness. I'm not talking about somebody who's not currently interested in the things of God. I'm talking about someone who is adamantly opposed to it. That's the mockers. That's the scornful. Adamantly opposed to it. Here's the thing. People have tried to stand in, in, in opposition to that, but God somehow always seems to come out on top. And that's a good word when you're in the dog days of the soul. God's word always comes out on top. God's truth always tends to just stand the test of time. And he'll always be there. He'll always be there. The second thing, and we spend a lot of time on number one because two and three are not near as long as the first one. So consider where we get our counsel. Consider where we find our delight. 
Consider what we're really delighting in as well. Verse number two, it says, his delight is in the law of the Lord. The question is what really makes us tick? What am I really interested in? What am I finding delight in in my life? What delights me? It says his law, his delight is in the Lord's instruction or in the law of the Lord, and he does meditate on it day and night. See, when Moses died back in the Old Testament and Joshua, uh, his assistant, God promoted him to being the new leader of the nation of Israel out in the wilderness. He took, he took Joshua up to a hill and he said, Joshua, let's have a pep talk because Joshua was scared spitless, man. He was scared to death. And here's the advice that God gave him in Joshua chapter one. He says, this book of instruction or this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. You are to meditate on it day and night so that you may carefully observe everything that is written in it for then you will prosper and succeed wherever you go. So what God was saying to Joshua is, Joshua, you don't know how to lead my people. That's okay. I've given you a roadmap. It's in my word. Get in it, study it, meditate on it, believe it, and walk by it. That's the same advice to us as we lead our lives today. Seems a little bit like the Bible or God's instruction is important to us. Getting in the word is vital. Why? Because God's word has this way of just capturing our affection. I pray and I hope, one of my prayers for our church, for you individually as I pray for you, is that God, will you develop a deep love in each one of our church members, a deep love for your word. Not only a deep love for you, a deep lover for our church, but a deep love for your word. God's word has a way of grabbing our attention and nurturing this affection for it in his word so that I can't go weeks and months and days and years without exposure to God's word, it becomes food that I need within myself. That word delight means that I'm bent towards something. I'm bent towards something so much that I begin to get cravings for it. It speaks of this full and entire inclination or movement towards it. So here's the thing. If I say I delight in pizza, I've talked about this before. If I delight in pizza, that means I'm totally given to it. I love it. Every opportunity I have to have it, I'll get it. I'll make opportunities to get it. I have found myself making a pizza with a carb-free tortilla and crushed up tomatoes and some, some cheese just so I could have pizza when I'm on my diet, right? If I say that I love pizza, I delight in it. What it says, it has my heart. Now, it kind of seems kind of ridiculous to talk about that in pizzas, in, in terms of pizza. I don't delight in pizza that much, but I really, it, it's tasty. But what do you delight in? What's our delight in? Our delight, the Bible says, should be in God's instruction because what we delight in will end up directing us and it will also end up affecting us as well. If I delight in pizza too much, it's going to have an effect on my body. If you delight in the word of God, it will have an effect on your spirit. It will have an effect on your testimony. It will have an effect on the way we live and interact with people around us. The psalmist said that the word of God should be our delight because what we delight in will end up directing us and affecting us. Psalm 40 verse 8 says, I will delight to do your will, my God. Your law is within my heart. And Psalm 112 says, praise the Lord. Blessed is the man that fears the Lord, that delights greatly in his commandments. In Psalm 119, which that whole chapter, by the way, is about the word of God. He says, blessed are they that keep his testimonies and that seek him with his whole heart. 176 verses in Psalm 119. Every single verse is about this book and how good it is and how powerful it is and how much we need it. So in the spiritual dog days, we have to find a way where we come back to where we delight in his word because it will grab our attention. He says not only to delight in it, but to meditate in it. Are we meditating in his word? What does it mean to meditate? It means to take his word in and really ponder it and let it wash over our spirit. Someone once said that meditation 
is what meditation for the soul is what digestion is for the body. It's what takes it, digestion takes in the food that we eat, maybe not the pizza, but you know, the good food that you're supposed to eat. And it, and, and it, and it disseminates the nutrients to where your body needs it. This is what meditation does for the soul. It takes in the word of God and you begin to digest it and it begins to feed your soul and your spirit in everything that it needs. This is why the word of God is complete and perfect. It is everything that we need. So the word of God should grab our attention. So the question is, does the word have our undivided attention? And as I already said, in our day of technology and our day of all the distractions and screens flashing everywhere and radios and all that stuff, we have to almost fight and intentionally get to a place where we can drown everything out so that we can hear the still small voice of the Lord. I don't know about you, but I find myself in the busyness of my day having to make sure that I've carved out time to be here, to be in the word. So we have to consider, we have to consider what we are delighting in. But here's the thing, just because the voices around us may be louder, it doesn't mean that God has stopped speaking. God is still speaking. He's still speaking in that still small voice. He hasn't stopped speaking, but the question is, have we stopped listening? And so as we close out this morning, we have to consider the counsel. We have to consider what we delight in, and then we have to consider who's really developing us. Because each one of us are a work in progress right? None of us are complete. You remember that kid song, He's Still Working On Me? He's still working on me to make me what I ought to be, right? That means that once we're saved, we're not a complete project. Our salvation is secure, but we're a a work in progress. God is still working on me every day. God is working to produce something within us, but guess what else is working to produce? Our flesh is still working to produce fleshly fruit too. Verse number three is the result of verses one and two. He says, he'll be like a tree that is planted, planted by flowing streams or by rivers of water. And that's beautiful language when you're in the dog days of the soul, isn't it? I'm dried up. I'm hurting. I'm wondering what's going on and I feel far from God. Well, guess what? God is right where he's always been. Find your way, find your way, draw close to him and he'll draw near to you. Plant yourself in him, in his word, and he will refresh you with continual stream of flowing water. He says you'll be like a tree. This is a metaphor that's used for our spiritual success so many times. A tree produces fruit, right? An apple tree produces, well, unless you grow in my house or at my, in my yard, it doesn't produce much of anything except death and destruction and weeds. But properly maintained, a tree will produce fruit. Right now, we did a lot of work on vacation since we didn't get to go to where we had planned because of COVID cooties. So we did a lot of work and we did a lot of work in our backyard and I ordered some sod to lay down in the backyard. And the thing about sod is you gotta water that stuff like crazy. It's gotta, and and nothing like picking the dog days of summer to lay sod down, right? Derek did it. This might be why I can't grow anything, right? So I'm keeping that sucker watered. I'm like setting my timer. I'm waking up in the middle of the night to go water. I'm treating it like a newborn baby. Why? Because we need that water. They need that water to grow and the roots to take. take. It needs that continuous, consistent stream to nourish it. But you know what? So do we. We're like that sod. We've been planted in this world. We got to put down roots in the right place. We've got to have the right source of nutrition. We've got to be continually and constantly watered by the Spirit of God, by the Word of God, by the people of God, pursuing God together. See, we'll never be developed in Christ if we're not planted firmly in Christ. And you can be saved 
but not planted in Jesus. You may be in his grip, but not planted in his soul. So what does God want to develop in me? Here's what God is wanting to develop in you as we close out. God wants to develop strength within us. Not just babies in Christ. That's why he says, don't be newborn babes, but move on to adulthood. Move on to strength in me. And the way he does that is the winds and the, and the waves will howl and rage, but the way we remain strong no matter where we may be is to be planted and rooted deep in Jesus Christ. When things get rough, I run to Jesus. When I don't know the answers in front of me, I run to the one who knows the answers above me. That's where my strength and my health comes from. The beauty of the tree is that its strength comes from the roots that grow down deep. The reason you see a healthy tree up top is because it's well-nourished down low. And that's the same thing with, with us as believers. When we see being fruit being born, it's because our roots are driven down deep in the Lord. He wants to produce strength in us. He wants to develop resources around us. He says, you'll plant yourself beside flowing streams. Stream, are you planted by right now? You have a choice. I can plant myself beside the flowing stream of the Word of God, the water of life, or I can plant myself beside the stream of constant fear, shame, regret, anger, lies, deceit, temptation. I can plant myself beside all of that if I want to do that, but what I get nourished with is what will be produced in me. And if you nourish yourself with death, the result will be death. God wants to develop those resources around us, but he also wants to develop his glory through us. So the question is, why does God want me to be godly? Some would say, well, so I can be blessed. Man, that's such a small way of looking at it. Why does God want us to be godly? It's so his glory can be put on display in the world around us. Because as dry as the season of the soul for the believer may feel, imagine how dry the season of the soul is for someone who doesn't know Christ, who, can't, who has not come to the stream of living water yet. And so God wants us to live godly lives so his glory can be seen and invited to those streams. See, he says he bears fruit in his season, his leaf doesn't wither, and whatever he does will prosper that our prosperity is not just about me taking things in so that I can enjoy them. My prosperity is for others. See, what good is an apple to an apple tree? You ever ask yourself that? You walk by an apple tree and you ask yourself, what good is that apple to an apple tree? It's not good to it. What that tree needs is water and good soil. That tree doesn't need that apple. But I need that apple. You walk by an orange tree. What good is an orange, orange to an orange tree? Vitamin C doesn't nourish it, but it nourishes me. You see, the reason we're told to bear fruit and to prosper with leaves that don't wither is not for me, it's for others around us. This is the goal of godliness, so that God may be glorified through us for others. So the question this morning as we begin to wind down, as the children of God, as the church of Jesus Christ, am I bearing fruit that glorifies God here's the thing, if I have stopped doing that or if I've thought that, ch that chasing after something else is different, can I, just be, can I just be as gentle as I can possibly be? Well, maybe it's not gentle, but I'm going to say a hard thing in a gentle way. If we are not choosing to live godly lives to lead people to Christ, then why shouldn't we be in a dry season of the soul? Because that's what we're created to thrive off of.
We're created to thrive off of serving Him and bearing fruit for Him. So the question that we close out this morning with just three things to ask yourself. If you're watching still, hopefully I haven't run you off yet. What is guiding my steps? As a child of God, what is guiding my steps right now? What am I looking to to fuel me? Where am I looking to kind of bring me to a place of passion? Where, what is guiding my steps? Am I walking in the wise counsel of God and godly people, or am I seeking counsel elsewhere? Where am I currently planted? That's the third question. But the second question, where am I currently planted? Am I planted beside the stream, the continuous stream of, of, of life, or have I been planted just too much in the culture of death? Letting all the stuff and all the messages and all the fighting, all the bickering, all that stuff just begin to just affect me too much. And who am I surrounding myself with? If I found myself in the company of sinners and enjoying that more than I should, or if I found myself in the place where I find myself enjoying the company of fellow believers who are pursuing godliness as well. The best person we can keep company with say, well, it's hard to keep company right now because they're saying, you know, you got to keep distance, and I understand that, and it's, it, it hurts. It hurts. But there's a friend that sits closer than a brother. You can always keep company with Jesus, and we're called to do that, to walk with Him every day, to pray without ceasing. Are you keeping company with Jesus? And you may be here, or you may be watching this morning, and I've talked mostly to people who say, hey, I've placed my trust, and I'm following Jesus, and maybe you've still got questions about that. You say, well, I don't know if I'm a Christian or not. I want to encourage you this morning to understand that this message applies too because there is a path that we, that we walk that leads to destruction, a path that will lead to life. And the path is set at Jesus Christ. Come to Jesus. Trust Him as your Savior. Walk with Him. Get in His way. Jesus said, I will, I will forgive you of your sin have to ask. You must repent of your sin. Trust me and follow me. In those dog days of the soul, we'll go through them, but we know where to go once we're in them. Get into them. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that you have your way and will in this invitation in this time of response. I pray that you have spoken and not me. Do what you see fit within us. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. As we come to the conclusion of this week's message, we pray that it has ministered to you and challenged you from the Word of God. We would love to hear from you. If you would like to connect with us, you can go to www.gracewaylegs.org. Click on Contact Us, and we would love to have a discussion with you about your faith. Thank you. We'll talk to you again next week.